0: for joining us for another God-inspired message from C3 Church Monash. Connect with us online at c3monash.org.au and we hope you enjoy today's message. Thank you worship team, most appreciated. Uh, I have the privilege this morning of uh, bringing to a close our series on vision we've been working through this month. As Wayne mentioned before, last week was Vision Sunday. Um, What we'd like to do is if you weren't here last week, and you would like to write those visions and dreams and goals down that are on your heart for this year, we'd love you to do that. Uh, and we will give opportunity again for those to be prayed over uh, at the end of the service. So if you're thinking, if that's you, if you weren't here last week and you'd like to take that opportunity, we'd love to give that to you. The crew actually have some more of our vision slips. Um, so just raise your hand up in the crew and the guys will get one to you. Beautiful. And just take a few moments throughout the service if you'd like to write that down and then we will get you to come forward at the end and we had to pray over those. Fantastic. So in wrapping up our focus on vision, we're gonna tap into some familiar thoughts, one or two that we would be aware of already, but also hopefully we'll extend our thinking a little bit and maybe send us away with a bit of a challenge. What better way to do that than to track primarily this morning with a very well-known character of the biblical narrative, and one whose story involves favor, seduction, betrayal, pain, loss, and triumph. And all of it very closely tied to the idea of vision. So the life of Joseph is all about dreams and visions. It is a narrative about divine revelation and the outworking of that revelation in the midst of humanity. And much like the rest of scripture, the narrative plays out for the glory of God and for the good of those involved. But it does so in the context of real life. Real relationships, real pain, real hurt, but also grace, forgiveness and victory. So we're just going to pray very quickly into that, and then we'll get started. Father God, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks that we can come around that word, Lord God, that there are lessons to be learned in that, that there is comfort to be found in that, Lord God, and that there is challenge to come up and rise up against within that, Lord God. Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask and we pray that you would bring it home to us today. In your name, Jesus, amen. At the start of the month, Steve Miles preached a fantastic message. Who is here for that message? Steve Miles' message is beautiful. It's a fantastic message around how God has a vision, that God has always had a vision, and he has had a plan for the fulfillment of that vision. Steve touched on how God's plan for the salvation of the world was always Jesus and the cross, long before the cross was an actual reality. God has always had a vision for the world at large, and he's always had a vision for you and I. But too often, the question we ask is still not, God, what do you want for me, and where do you see me headed? Instead, we still ask first, what is it that I want, and where do I see myself headed? Not wrong in and of itself, but I think sometimes we're still getting the order a little mixed up. Think about it. How many times in the past have you asked a child or a young person, so what do you want to be when you grow up? How many times have you asked someone or been asked by somebody, where do you see yourself in five years? What's your five-year plan? See, fundamentally, we are conditioned to ask and to seek out what it is that I want and how am I going to go about getting it. It's very easy to become swept up in that thinking and the attempt to drive our own vision. But God's take is a little bit different than ours. It requires us to release control and to submit to his heart's desire for us. But we get to do so knowing and believing that he already has a vision in place and that he will bring it to pass. So the first thought today is very familiar, but vision belongs to God. Now the record of Joseph's life, and we'll work through it this morning. Um, I just want to start to finish, but we are going to jump around a little bit, so hopefully I don't lose you. Um, but it starts in chapter 37 of Genesis and basically runs through to the end of the book. Well, we're going to start in verse 5 of chapter 37. This is where we have the first pair of dreams that connect us to Joseph's future and God's vision for his life. So verse 5 reads, Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He was the favoured son, so now they hate him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words." Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed bow ourselves to the ground before you? It's fairly full on. And although it's not specified specifically in this particular passage in Genesis Dreams are normally associated with divine revelation. You see it in a few different places, you can look for those if you'd like, in chapter 20, verses three or 12 and 31:10. But what's interesting is that we're not meant to be surprised by this fact. Dreams and visions are of the divine. It is the accepted norm. This is obviously how Joseph and his brothers understood it too, because Joseph is only 17 years old. He is the second youngest of 12 brothers and multiple sisters. Yet when he comes to share his grandiose dreams with his brothers, they don't immediately dismiss or deflect his words as those of a younger, annoying, and overindulged sibling. They very intuitively, in fact, interpret his dreams as God-given. And with the question, "'Are you indeed to reign over us?' Asked almost rhetorically and spoken as a statement, they in fact acknowledge and reinforce what God has said to Joseph. So there's a very innate understanding amongst them that dreams, vision, revelation belong to God. Such is their understanding of this and their recognition of the fact that these visions are a picture of their future reality that they set about removing Joseph and hopefully the dreams from the picture altogether. In the New Testament, we find further weight added to the idea that vision, dreams, and revelation, and then the outworking of that in our life, belongs to God. There's an interesting interaction between the Apostle Paul and the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 16. We might be tempted, and I know this is true of me, to think that in the story of Joseph, where there's all these supernatural dreams and visions and revelation, well, of course, those things belong to God. But I don't see that kind of thing happen in my life every day. But in Acts, what we see is God's ownership of the everyday. God's desire to direct our paths and ensure that it's his vision that we're pursuing and not our own. So Acts chapter 16 verse 6 reads, And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. Now, if you know anything about Paul, you know that he was zealous for the Lord. And then he wanted nothing more than to share the gospel. And Paul had a plan for how he was going to do that on this particular trip. He had a vision for taking the word into Asia. Seems like a good idea, right? If it's a vision, surely it's a vision that God's going to get behind. But in this instance, apparently not. Conventional wisdom would have said, go there and share the good news. But submission to God's will or recognition of his vision meant adjusting and course-correcting, even when it didn't quite make sense. See, God will sometimes hide his purposes on purpose because he wants dependency and not self-sufficiency. Jesus wants Josephs, who at their core understand that dreams and visions belong to God. And then he wants Pauls, who are going to recheck, reassess, and course-correct as guided to ensure that we are following the vision that he has for us, even if it's not quite what we had hoped for ourselves. The next thought has to do with the difficulties of vision. Now, I don't know about you, but one of the things that I'm often challenged by is the perceived conflict I see or feel between what I know about God and what happens in my life or what I see lived in the lives of those around me. What I know is God's love for me through Jesus. And I know that he has a plan for me. I know that he has a vision. But so often what I experience is not the heartwarming, feel-good vibes of God's vision just sort of coming to pass in my life. So often what I experience is just life. Confusing, sometimes challenging, often great, but just life. And it might sound a little naive... But I think times, at times we can come away from, say, a day like Vision Sunday, full of God's presence and an air of positive expectation or anticipation for what God is going to do with the dreams and visions on our heart. And then we walk straight into a week or a month or whatever, and it all just falls apart. Someone loses a job. Somebody gets an unfavorable diagnosis from the doctor. Somebody's teenager decides they no longer want anything to do with mum and dad. Someone at work or uni, for reasons unknown, decides all of a sudden they have it in for us. And it could be anything, but the reality is it's life. And when you engage with the Word of God, when we engage with Scripture, and not just cherry-picking out the good sound bites, but when you go for the entire narrative and you see the story beneath the the narrative, what we realise is that, by and large, God will bring about vision in our lives, not in spite of the trials, but through them. So if we come back to the life of Joseph, what we see is this play out over and over again. And there's a couple of lessons for us to learn here. The first of which is right back at the beginning of the story. Not long after Joseph shares his dreams from God, we have his brother's response in 37, 18 to 20. That'll come up possibly. They saw him from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. Most of us would know that they don't end up killing Joseph. Instead, they sell him as a slave to Ishmaelite traders who take him into Egypt. But the first lesson for us to learn here, and it might seem really obvious, but is this. Not everybody is going to get on board with God's vision for your life. In fact, there will be people who will actively try to prevent it from coming to pass, And some of them, unlike Joseph's brothers, may even think they're acting with the best of intentions. What Joseph's brothers didn't realize was that contained within the vision for Joseph was their own salvation and well-being. Because, and we'll come back to this a bit later, but God's vision for our lives is so rarely just about us. God's, they couldn't see that, sorry. They knew it was from God. They knew there was a truth to it. They just didn't understand it, so they feared it. And then they acted to end it. But this is why it's so important to know that the vision we are pursuing is from God. To take the time to test it in prayer. To test it against scripture. To share it with trusted friends and counsellors. Because there will be opposition to it. And knowing that you're on God's path helps you to stay the path. And when you're inside God's will for your life, it doesn't matter if there is opposition. Because you become like Noah, confidently building an ark on dry ground, because you know what's coming, even if others don't. The second lesson for us to learn that has to do with the difficulties of vision is connected to control. So for anyone who's not overly familiar with the story of Joseph, we'll summarize through the next portion of his journey that begins with those Ishmaelite traders taking him into Egypt where they sell him to an Egyptian official by the name of Potiphar. And with Potiphar, God blesses Joseph. He becomes very successful, he's made the overseer of Potiphar's house, and he's put in charge of everything that Potiphar owns. The scripture in fact tells us that God blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. So things begin to look up for him. The only thing is, Joseph also happens to be a pretty good looking rooster. Verse 6 of 39 says to us, Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And the trouble is that Potiphar's wife takes a little too much of a liking to Joseph. She attempts to seduce him on multiple occasions. And after his multiple or continued refusals, she falsely accuses him of rape. And Potiphar, believing his wife, throws Joseph in prison. But again, the Lord was with Joseph. Verse 21 of 39 says, But the law was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favour in the sight of the keeper of the prison. So, again, it's the idea of God's favour and his vision being worked out in the context of difficult circumstances. Now, while he's in prison, Joseph interacts with two of Pharaoh's other officials, his chief cupbearer and the chief baker, both of whom have offended Pharaoh somehow, and as such, like Joseph, they've been thrown into prison. Now, while these guys are in prison, each of them has a dream, and they're disturbed and troubled by the dream. Not so much just the dream, but by the fact that because they're now in prison, they have nobody to interpret it for them, none of them, even pharaohs, magicians, or anything like that. So they know that these visions and dreams are divine, but they have no way of determining their meaning. In verse 40, verses 8, uh, chapter 40, verse 8, Sorry, Joseph says to them, Do not interpretations belong to God. Please tell them to me. Joseph knows dreams and visions belong to God and so that it's God who can interpret them, which he then does through Joseph. And it's here at this point that we're going to stop for just a moment. We're going to see if we can pick up the struggle that Joseph is having with control and God's vision for his life. So chapter 40, verses 9 through to 23, and it will come up. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, in my dream, there was a vine before me. And on the vine there were three branches, and as soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days, In three days Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh... And so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head. And in the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh. But the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. And three days Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree. And the birds will eat the flesh from you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. In this passage... In this moment of Joseph's life, we can see him attempting to wrest control of the vision and of his life back out of God's hands. It's really easy to miss or to skimmer over without thinking too much about it, but it's here. It is the only time in the 13 chapters that cover off over Joseph's life where he attempts to manipulate his own situation. And I get it. I don't know about you, but I actually get it. The poor guy is justifiably miffed. He has come through a significant trauma at the hands of his own family into a place of favour, Potiphar's house. And then he's unfairly accused of and thrown in prison for a crime that he didn't commit. And I can see him saying to God, it's not fair. I did no wrong and I acted righteously. Yet here I am in prison. So he seeks to use the situation he's now in to his advantage and he tries to take back some control. If we look quickly again at verses 14 and 15, it says only remember me when it is well with you and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. When it goes well with you, because, and this is Joseph, I know it's going to go well with you. God has given me a favorable interpretation for you. Surely that carries some weight. You can remember me and what I've done, and you can get me out of here because I should not be in this place. Now, notice that he doesn't say the same thing to the baker because the baker's interpretation wasn't very favorable, was it? He wouldn't, and in fact couldn't, have done anything to help Joseph. But what Joseph sees here is a way to manipulate his own situation. And again, I get it, I understand it, but he sees a way to manipulate his situation and perhaps speed up the process that God has got him in. But in the end, what happens? Verses 21 through to 23, he restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker, as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. And then in verse 1 of chapter 41, so just the next verse down, after two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. So the next stage of Joseph's journey doesn't begin for another two whole years. What's really interesting too is that the context or the understanding of time for the Hebrews is very different to our own. For them, any part of a day is a day. Any part of a year is a year. So for instance, someone might have said he was in Egypt for three years where he technically might have only been there for one day of the first year, the entirety of the second year, and one day of the third year. They would still say he was in Egypt for three years. So it's interesting that in this particular passage right here, the writer actually makes a point of saying, after two whole years. I think he wants us to look at that. I think he wants us to see something. Perhaps Joseph's attempt to wrest control back from God had the opposite effect to what he was hoping for. Maybe it was God saying to Joseph, the vision is mine, and have I not already brought you this far? Have I not already been with you and blessed you, even in trial? Do you no longer believe that I can and will bring to pass the vision for your life? Perhaps like Joseph, though, at times in our own journey, we get impatient with God, or we're not sure if he's still heading in the direction that he told us he was. Maybe your vision for 2019 requires you to be still and wait. And yet at the moment, all you see are all of these fantastic opportunities that just seem to be flying past you. Will you take him at his word and trust him to do what he said he will? Will you refrain from manipulating or influencing a situation to serve your own ends? And if God wants you to step out in faith this year and take some risks, And that's just not normally you. Are you going to stay shrunk back and try and keep control? Or are you going to activate your faith, trust his vision, and be bold in the manner that he's asking you to? Stay or go, move or stop, it doesn't really matter. The point is, and what counts, is that we maintain a posture of trust and faith. No matter how things might look to us, that we trust his vision, that we trust his timing, and that we resist our very human urge to take back control. How are we doing? We okay? It feels intense. let to do a dance or something. All right, final or third thought it is not just about you. That is not always an easy thing to hear, particularly in the culture of our day, where so much time, energy and activity is directed towards a focus on ourselves. And not all of that is bad at all. But as was alluded to before, God's vision for our lives is so rarely just about us. Joseph is the central figure in his own story, for sure. But from the very beginning, God had others in mind when he was planning out Joseph's future. In 37 verse 5, we saw Joseph dream that one day his family would bow before him. And as we know, they didn't understand it, so they acted out of their lack of understanding. But in chapter 42 verse 6, what we have is the fulfillment of those original dreams. And we begin to see what it is that God had in mind all along. So 42 6 reads, Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. So here we have Joseph, who is now the governor over all Egypt. He is second only to Pharaoh himself. At the end of those additional two years in prison, Joseph is called on by Pharaoh to interpret a pair of dreams that he's had. Joseph does so, but he makes sure he tells Pharaoh, it's not me. God has a favorable interpretation for you. Pharaoh's dreams relate to a period of about 14 years that will begin with seven years of plenty there will be sowing and reaping and harvesting. There will be abundance throughout the land. But those seven years will be very closely followed by seven years of famine. Seven years where there will, nothing will grow. There will be no sowing and no harvesting. Joseph accurately interprets the dreams. And because of God's favor and his administrative gifting, which we've seen in Potiphar's house and also in prison, he's placed in charge of over, over all Egypt. And he's tasked with managing the years of abundance and for planning so that there is food for the people during the seven years of famine that will follow. Now, so good is Joseph at what he does is that not only is there plenty of food for the Egyptians, but during the years of famine, there is capacity for Egypt to be selling grain and supplies to neighboring countries and peoples. This is how we end up with Joseph's brothers in Egypt, bowing themselves before him. Now, there is all sorts of revelation, healing and reconciliation that occurs with for the family. We don't have time for that today. But in verses 1 to 8 of 45, what we see is Joseph's realisation of all that God has been doing and what he'd envisioned for Joseph's future all along. So 45 verses 1 to 8. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me, so that no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brother's. And he wept aloud, so the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph, is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land for these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. I wish we had more time to just let that sit. I'd be very happy to stand here for a few minutes in the quiet and let that sit. Because you have to consider everything that this guy has been through. You actually have to meditate on it. Don't just skim through it. You read it and you've got to let it marinate and you've got to say, God, what's going on? If you are any hope of capturing the magnitude of this revelation, it will take time. So here's Joseph, 22 years after receiving the initial vision. And it's only now in their fulfillment that he gains understanding. All that has occurred was not just, or even primarily, about him. Verse 5, God sent me ahead of you to preserve life. It was about other people. And it was about what God would do in the lives of others through the vision that he had for Joseph. Who in our lives carries or holds a position of importance or primacy for the vision that God has for you? Now, that may be clear right now, or it may, as it was for Joseph, become clearer later on. But regardless, what is key is that we are maintaining a posture of outward facing awareness. And that we are mindful of who it is that God is bringing into our sphere of influence. Who is God bringing into our life for the express purpose that they would benefit from the vision that God has for you. As we bring this to a close, one final thought tied to the idea that it's not just about us. I need to recognise that ultimately it's about God himself. Throughout all of Joseph's trials and triumph, it is noted that God was with Joseph. And it was understood by those in his life, so Potiphar, keeper of the prison and Pharaoh, that his success, his achievements, and the blessings that came on Joseph and on everybody around him were the direct result of God's favour. And this is also why God utilises his vision for our lives to influence the lives of so many others. He wants the impact of your life to spread much further than just you, because it will bring a greater glory to his name. God doesn't want it to be kept secret. He very much wants it known that he is the originator of your vision and that it is him who will bring it to pass. When that occurs, it is then that his name will be glorified and made known amongst the nations, just like it was in the story of Joseph. Now I want to take a minute and just sit for a moment and hopefully let some of that settle in. God put this word together so that we could learn from it, move forward in it, be encouraged by it, challenged by it. And as I said, I want to give opportunity for anybody who wasn't here last week to bring your dreams and your visions forward or bring the visions and the dreams that God has for you forward so we can pray over those. But I also want to open the altar up and actually say, if there's anybody out there who's actually not quite sure of that vision, if there's anyone out there who's actually wrestling with the vision for your life, perhaps you feel like it's really clear and you just don't like it and you want to fight with God about it. That's cool. Come down and let's do that together. Let's pray about it. Because as we can see from the life of Joseph, it's not always easy. It won't always just be one simple step after another or one really clear picture after another and our humanity will always seek to pull it back in and take control. So if you would like to come forward because you're feeling like I don't like the vision God's got for me or I'm not sure what it is or whatever it might be, then come on down and let's pray about that. So we might, if we can, maybe just get the keys back up. And firstly, I'd love to just get Steve and Chris, if you guys are happy to join and pray over anyone who comes forward with dreams or visions. And then if you're just looking for prayer around your vision or a challenge within that, I'd love to pray for you as well. So come on forward. I invite you to come on down now. Father, we ask and pray that you bring vision and clarity to the people in this family, Lord God, that you would bless that moving forward. And even when it might not look great or it feels uncomfortable, that we would all remain in a place of trusting your timing and your vision, Lord God.